If you guys want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, that'll be the first passage um, <clears throat> that we look at. I had uh, I asked James to read Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 1 through 5 just to give you a taste of um, what several chapters at the end of Ezekiel are like. Uh, all this detail of this measuring rod that, you know, he goes along and he measures all of these doorways and entryways and walls and heights and, and you know, he's measuring the temple, right? He's told that this is the temple and he's supposed to go tell everyone about it. Um, and, you know, it, it reminds me of, of course, Exodus where... Uh, Moses is given the, the plans for the tabernacle in excruciating detail. You know, what the rings on this part are supposed to be made out of silver, and this, the rings on this part are made out of bronze, and there's this many rings, and the nails are made out of this, and the joints. And, and then a couple chapters later, you know, he's given the details, and then a couple chapters later, all those details are repeated when it, when it says, and they made this many rings out of silver for this part of the tabernacle, and they made this many rings out of bronze for this part of I mean, it's like, this was the plan, this is what we did. And they repeat the plan, and you get to the end of it, and it says, thus Moses did just as the Lord commanded, right? Everything, all this detail. Um, well, you know, it occurred to me, I was reading in First Chronicles 28, and I, and I have read this before, but it's something that just always sticks out at me because I grew up not thinking this way. If you look in First Chronicles uh, chapter 28, um, beginning in verse 11, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 and then skip down to 19. First Chronicles 28:11. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple and its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms for the storehouses of the house of God for the storehouses of the dedicated things now drop down to verse 19 all this said David the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern um, I, I didn't grow up in you know a uh, a particular faith. I mean, you could say I grew up in a Christian-influenced household. Um, and it really was kind of taught that the tabernacle was, you know, all these details, and then David just kind of did his thing. Uh, like, he wanted the temple, and God didn't let him build it, but he, right, designed it, and he added instruments to the worship, you know, and uh, he, you know, all that. And we actually read here that it was God's hand upon him in writing that he wrote down all the plans for the temple. It wasn't even Solomon's plan or David's plan. God gave all the details for the temple. And we read in Second Chronicles, and we're, I, we don't have to go over there, but we read in Second Chronicles when Hezekiah is reinstituting the temple worship that he specifically says, and we placed all of the music makers with their instruments in place because the command was from David and Gad and Nathan. 
right? So we read there that even the musical instruments, there, there really wasn't anything that God allowed to be part of the tabernacle or the temple that wasn't laid out in plan, commanded. And in Ezekiel, we have this, at the end of Ezekiel, we have this massive temple, right, where God is saying, hey, everyone has been carried off into captivity. This is my plan for you in the future. And it's this monstrosity of a city and, and temple that's, right, not, I won't say it's not physically possible, <laughs> right, but it's never been physically realized. I mean, it would be an undertaking, a just incredible undertaking to build a temple like the physical measurements we see. My contention and my suggestion to you is that that's a plan, so to speak, of the church. Well, where do I, you know, where do I come up with, with that idea? Um, turn over to 2 Corinthians now, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And there are several passages we could turn to see this a similar idea or maybe even this same idea. We're going to look at several of these passages. And what I'm, my intention with this lesson is that we're looking at God's plan, the Lord's plan. And I don't mean the details of how he planned salvation, but we're looking at the fact that he has a plan and a design. And he implements those things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, and, and I'm taking this in mid-thought, so it's slightly out of context, but there's a point here I think is valid. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, and then he quotes, right? The Old Testament, and he says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Thus claiming that that's been fulfilled. In his time, it is fulfilled. He doesn't say we will be the temple of the living God. He says we are. Paul was not sitting in Corinth when he wrote this, meaning by we, right? He's including himself with them. By implication, he's saying the saved. The saved are the temple of God. So when my, my, my suggestion to you is that when Ezekiel was being shown seven, eight chapters of detail about this massive temple and the clothes that the priests were going to take in the storehouses and, and you know, who could enter where and the prince's gate and the south gate and the north gate, all of that stuff. It's really the message that God says, I've got this figured out. Don't think for a minute I haven't been thinking about your future. Meaning, right, the children of Abraham in the sense that Paul uses it in Galatians. Now he does restore the children of Abraham physically, right? But when the foundation is laid for the temple, people start crying. They're like, we, we know. We're familiar with Solomon's temple, the few of us. 
this is sad. Not that they wanted to stop building a temple. It's just wasn't it wasn't the same. Right? And Ezekiel's temple is incomparable to any structure. Right? So that's why I say really what God's message was to Ezekiel and those who read Ezekiel and who he spoke to because he was told to give that to the children of Israel is to say, I've, I've been working on this for a while. <laughs> the plan that I have is very detailed, excruciatingly detailed. I've got everything figured out. And you're going to have responsibilities. The priests are going to have responsibilities. The prince is going to have responsibilities. But I've got it, I've got it figured out. And what we read in 2 Corinthians 6 is that Paul, writing to Corinth, we are the temple of God. He is walking among them. He is dwelling in them. He is their God, our God. So I want to take that idea and explore that just a little bit. It's really that just one idea that I think is so simple that it's something I've had to fight against in my own head, right? My own misconceptions is that really God only planned out things in Exodus and the rest of it was him reacting to his creation. <clears throat> oh, they didn't do this quite right. I've got to carry them off into captivity. Oh, this and, you know, oh, you know, Solomon's temple was so great. But, you know, well, you know, I'm going to show them this image, but they're never really going to see it. Um, you know, and oh, yeah, I mean, that, that same thought is applied to Jesus. Well, you know, Jesus came and he had this great plan where, you know, maybe Ezekiel's temple wasn't going to be built physically. And then they killed him. So that didn't work out so well. So now maybe he's going to come back and he's going to build Ezekiel's temple like physically. Right? Well, that's kind of the concept I grew up thinking was that God really only planned and had control in Exodus. And after that, you know, his people became too unwieldy for him to handle. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds crazy to say it that way, but that really is, when you, when you take it to its conclusion, that's what that, tra that train of thought is. Is that God is overcome by the free will of his people. He's overcome by their rebellion. He can't impose his design on the final temple. He can't do it. He didn't do it. And now we're kind of in this free thing, this, this accident of history that just the church it was God's like plan C3 or whatever, right? That, well, if I can't do what I want to do, I'm going to do this instead. And hey, you know what? Actually, it's kind of better than what I had planned. In the, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what is all in, in, in that train of thought, but that's what's in my, in, was in my head for years that I kind of grew up with is that the church is kind of this amorphous, unplanned, accidental reaction of God to his own creation. And that is absolutely a lie. And it's a dangerous lie. Because there are all kinds of shoots that can grow out of that. Well, if that's true, then this and then that and then the other. And what we see in Scripture is that God does give plans for his temples or his places of worship. And they are carried out. Right? 
So who is the temple? We, right? We are the temple. But is it a plan? And how long has it been a plan, right? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And again, I'm going to be taking a lot of verses kind of out of context, plucking them out. But I don't think I'm mistreating them. Uh, Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Well, the plan goes back to before the foundation of the world. Right? I mean, we know that the church... What Paul wrote in first in Second Corinthians six, the church, the church, right, the saved, the, that's the temple, right? Well, it says here, the plan was that we would be blameless. The plan before the foundation of the world is that we would be blameless through Jesus, which means the plan for the church goes back to before the foundation of the world. So before God said, "Let us create man in our image," before He said that, the design of the church was done. It's finished. It's already there. How he was going to save, right? Through his son, what we just read here. That was already planned out. It was thought. It wasn't a reaction. Like, oh, these people are so bad. We've got to do something. No. Before the, found- before the world was founded, God wanted to rescue us from our rebellion. It's like, before I create them, I know they're going to rebel, and I'm going to work out a plan to save them from their own rebellion. I think that's the similar message he was given in Ezekiel chapter 40. Hey, this is planned out. Yeah, you're, you're all in, right, for Ezekiel, you're all in captivity, right? But this is all planned out. And we have, obviously, a massive benefit of hindsight looking back, right, on all, especially all the New Testament writings. And we can see, how, like, how well planned out and to the extent at which it was planned out, right? But did you notice... Um, well, I, I want to back up. I want to back up for just a second. There's another passage in, in Ephesians there I want to look at. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Well, actually, let's look in 2 and then 4. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the... You see that? Having been built, right? On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And now also in chapter 4, verse 14. Ephesians 4 chapter uh, sorry Ephesians 4 verse 14 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We have very similar language used that says this temple is also a body. That's what I wanted to point out here in Ephesians, is that Paul sort of floats freely between the two ideas. That we are the temple, and we are the body, and in both senses we are fitted together, right, for a purpose. Peter also um, uh, uses a similar type of language in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, read verses 4 and 5. Peter says, "...and coming to him as to a living stone," right, Jesus, right, "...which has been rejected by men." He was rejected by men. "...but is choice and precious in the sight of God." You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, I mean, the image is even further detailed, like, okay, I'm a stone, you're a stone, right? He says individual living stones were coming to him and being fitted together. And this language was used in Ephesians, and it's used, it's used here too. It seems like it's this, this ongoing process. Um, you are being built up. You are being fitted together. Right? Well, who's, who's doing that? I mean, am I doing that? Like, are we doing that t- together? Are we kind of building the temple together? Well, I would refer back to Matthew chapter 16 on this. And I think this is a passage everyone is very familiar with. It's only one verse, Matthew 16, verse 18. Not getting into the context again, right? But a declaration that Jesus makes in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, that kind of that jives with what we just read in Peter. He says, okay, Jesus is this living stone that was rejected by men, but precious to God. And you also as living stones are coming to him, right? Peter just doesn't say, and he is building you up into a temple, right? But Jesus said, I will build my church. So I don't know how you guys picture all this stuff, but to, to, for me, right, coming out of this thought that the church is kind of this amorphous blobby response into something that's actually planned and like thought is put into and Jesus himself is doing the building right and and, and in fact it's such a building that the gates of Hades will not overpower it right I think of it as like okay when I'm when I'm first you know a member of the body or a member of the church maybe I'm this little baby stone like just kind of this rock just kind of rolls over and like kind of 
squeaky voice, right? Says, hey, Jesus, I'm here. Like, when can I be part of the building? And the implication is it's like now, right? Ephesians says every part is fitted together. And so, you know, maybe when on this little kind of squeaky little rock, he finds this perfectly shaped hole in the wall that I just fit right into and I do my job, right? Right away. I'm part of that structure that's a temple of God. He's walking among us, dwelling within us immediately. I mean, that's kind of cool. Like, I don't have to sort of be groomed to be a big stone. And then he's like, now you're useful. Right? We come to him as living stones, and he fits us together at that time. We're not sort of like, there's the temple, and there's all these stones kind of around the temple that are waiting to be useful to the temple. That's not the picture that's presented. There's a temple... And then there's not the temple. There's a body, and then there's those outside the body. There's not like I'm waiting to be useful to God to be part of the temple. Which means, in his plan, was me coming to him as this little tiny rock. And not thinking I'm useful, and not knowing how I can be useful, and not knowing everything about the church. He's like, yep, yeah, you're part of the plan. If I wasn't, he, wouldn't, he couldn't use me because, right, he's got this plan, he's got this rock that doesn't fit. And he's like, well, what is this? God doesn't have those moments. He's like, you're exactly what I planned. That's awesome. I mean, that's power. Is right when, when you give free will to individuals who are imperfect and they come to you in faith to be part of your temple and you have a perfect place for them to fit in. And to use them and make them useful. That is power and wisdom. Another verse in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 3, verse 10. I don't even have it here. But it basically says, when God wanted to, show his, wanted to manifest his wisdom to the powers in heavenly places, he gave them the church. Like... It, when he wanted to prove how smart he was, basically, how his wisdom is above every other being, he pointed to the church and he said, there you go. You want to see who I am? Look at this. And it was planned. It was planned. So it's this, it's this structure that's being built out of believers, out of people who are saved, being built by Jesus that can't be overcome by Hades. Which means I can't weaken it. All I can do is remove myself from it. Right? I can say, yep, I've seen the church I don't mean local church. I mean, right, the body. I've seen the temple. I've been, part of, I've been made part of the temple. It's not my thing. Well, I don't then weaken the temple. 
I just don't participate in it. How do I know I don't weaken it? Because the gates of Hades can't even overpower it. Well, who's stronger, me or death? Me or Hades? Well, it's not me. Right? When he builds it, it can't be overcome. So really, the only choice I have, the only relationship I have with, with this temple, the plan, right? God's plan, God's design, the church, the body. The only relationship I have is to be a part of it or not. I actually can't make it better. I can't make it weaker. I can affect other people in it. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer for that too. Like let's say I'm just not kind of well, it's not my thing, but hey, it shouldn't be your thing either. Let's come on, you know, why don't you just give up this thing, right? This temple, this church, this Christianity, right? I can cause you to stumble and pull yourself away from that temple as well. But really, the church itself, we didn't make it weaker. We just removed ourselves from the blessings of it. It's kind of a freeing thing for me to think about it that way. Because like being kind of this control freak engineer type, I'm like, I have to mold the church. And again, I don't mean this church. I mean like, I've got to make sure the church universal is super powerful and it's strong and there's no chink in the armor and nobody can attack it. Right? And I'm not, if I'm saying that out loud sounds ludicrous. But I'm just saying, if I'm honest with myself, that's my deep down attitude is I'm, I'm kind of this control freak. And I've got to protect the church. That's ridiculous. I can't even protect my own house. If somebody wants to break in my house, they're in the house. It's all about motivation. I can't actually stop them. How am I supposed to protect the church? Jesus is building it. And he's not even allowed Hades to overcome it, affect it, weaken it. My role in that is to be that stone and to come to him and say, I want to be a stone in the temple. And Jesus says, let's do it. So, spiritual structure designed by God, built by Jesus from living stones to serve as a temple, spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We choose to be a part of it or not. Because Jesus, the builder, has also paid the penalty, right, for our rebellion and rejection of God's design. When we sin, what we say is, my path is better than your path. My design, the way I use my thoughts, the way I use my body, the way I use everything you have given to me is better my way than your way. That's what sin is. And then we come to our senses, hopefully, and we say, you know, that was really arrogant. To tell the creator that the pot knows best how to be a pot. 
or whatever utensil, right? I just use clay pots because that's an example. And we come to him and he says, okay, well, but you're covered in sin. I'm not going to build my temple out of that. So the builder, right, pays his life to get, get rid of that and actually make you into a stone that can be used as a temple for God. All of this was planned. Again, I keep having to tell myself this as, uh, as I go through daily life. This wasn't reactionary. Like, oh, I wanted this holy priesthood, but now they're not holy. What am I going to do? I'm so confused. No, God never went through that. He's like, yep, they're doing exactly what I, I knew they would do. Now it's time to bring the Redeemer and let him build. And that's what he's doing. So we mentioned that he's that the the saved are the this temple or the church or the body. I, I want to look in Colossians chapter one and just just firm this up a little bit. Colossians chapter one verse eighteen. It says he, this is Jesus. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So now we have a little more insight into this plan, I think, in my opinion, because what it means is the body doesn't act without instruction from the head. If, if your body acts without instruction from your head, there's, it's a medical condition. Right, and it's a real medical condition. I've seen videos of this. It's like people who have alien alien hand syndrome. Have you guys heard of that? Like the muscles or the nerves or whatever in their hand, just they can't stop their hand. And just every so often, it just kind of does its own thing, and they just I don't know they wait it out or whatever. But it's it's a medical condition that everyone looks at and says that's not how it's supposed to work. Wouldn't be a medical condition if it worked how it's supposed to work. Well, you know, the church, the body, doesn't get alien hand syndrome. <laughs> we sometimes we think it does, right? We think, oh, this person in the church is really out, you know, kind of doing what they're not supposed to do, and, and so the church now is is affected and is sick and needs to be diagnosed and needs to be treated, right? Well, who does all of that? The builder does all of that. And he's designed some things in local churches, right, to, to try to address those things with discipline, right, with elders. There are things built into local churches for that. But when you're talking about the church universal, and I, I, I meant to draw this up on the board, right, when you're talking about the universal church, the body of those who are saved, decisions we make on a local level don't affect that membership. Because we could be wrong. You know, I could look at Kelly and say, Kelly, you know what? You are just not a Christian. You're not living like a Christian. You might be saying things. You might, you know, you might put on a show. But I know. I've seen, right? And I might convince the rest of the congregation to say, hey, you know what? We need to withdraw from Kelly. 
Well, if I just did that out of envy or whatever my motivation was, if this group was to withdraw from Kelly, which we see a pattern in, in the New Testament of churches doing, that doesn't remove him from the body of Christ. Right? I mean, it just doesn't, because we don't have the authority to do that. The builder has the authority to do that. And if we're like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we say, you know what? Kelly is involved in all kinds of sin, and you know what? Sin more that grace may abound. Because we're living in grace. And in fact, we're proud of this. Hey guys, look at this sinner we've got among us. Look at all the things he does, and he's welcome here because he's part of the body. Well, just because we welcome some kind of sin into the body doesn't actually mean that that person has been put in the body of Christ or in the temple. Because who does that? The builder does that. We roll up to him as a, as a living stone, and we say, hey, I'm here. And he says, okay, or no. And we'll get to how he makes that decision. We talked about some in class. But he does those things. I'm talking about that church, the body of saved. And it's his body, as we just read here. So the actions that are taken by the church, right, by the members, are done with instruction from the head. That's just how a body works. Okay? So how... Now we're coming to the end of the, of the class. I mean, the, the, the lesson. And it really was this simple. This is all I wanted to talk about was that the church was planned from before the beginning. Planned in detail. As have all been the houses of worship for God. The places of worship for Him. The difference with the church, right, is that it's being built by his son as a spiritual dwelling place as opposed to the symbols that were built, foreshadowing it, right? But how do you become a part of that body? Like, I mean, I like that idea. How do I be a part of the temple? I want God dwelling in me. I want to be part of that dwelling place. Well, let's, again, there's many passages we can look at. Um, look, but let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So, how do you get into the body? You were baptized into the body. Now, God could have designed... I mean, I, I don't know how many ways he could have come up with to get into the body. He could have made it a vote, right, among people that was binding. He has the authority to do that. 
he could have, I mean, he could have made it a prayer, right? By one prayer, you entered the body, and this is the prayer, or any prayer. There are any number of ways he could have said this is entrance into the body. But what he's clearly said is that it's by baptism. And we talked about this in class this morning, saying, oh, well, you must think water has some magical properties or it has even some spiritual properties. That like water itself or some type of water. Like I know, I have heard, right, that, well, you, you have to be baptized in running water instead of still water. And it has to be, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's like Naaman, right? Are not the rivers back in, in Damascus better than, than this? Right? What is taught here in the New Testament about being baptized into the body is that it's the method, the expression of faith, the call to God for a good conscience. There's nothing in the water that does anything because water is physical. There's no sin on your skin that somehow washes off in water. Sin isn't on skin. It's, right? So, so I want to read one last passage out of Romans 6 that just gives us the image, right? The image of this entry into the body. Romans chapter 6. And this, the, the, right, I, I refer to this already, verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul has just finished this great... This great treatise, almost, uh, where, where he's, he's basically saying, grace is bigger than sin. Any sin. There's no sin you can commit that grace can't overcome. Right? That's, that's basically what he's got through saying. So, he anticipates. Hey, sin can be overcome by grace. We can just go do anything. Anything. And keep doing it. And grace will, will keep us clean. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us, right here's verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Paul is very clear that, right, we're baptized into the death of Jesus. I'm sorry, we enter the death of Jesus through baptism. That we join him in that death through baptism. Right? I think really what he's saying is this is why God chose this symbol. Right? It's the beauty of it. Right? His son died, so you're going to die in a symbolic way. He's not saying there's anything in the water. 
It's in the obedience, right? Really, this is the power for me, is verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. Or just side note, right? A burial then is underneath, right? Baptism is a burial. And if you're not buried, you're not baptized. I'm not just making that up. That's what this says, right? Baptism is a burial. So to be baptized, you must be buried. Now, that's not the only thing involved in salvation. I'm not not trying to get to that point. What I'm trying to say is, when do I become a stone? When do I become a stone that gets added to a temple? This is when I become that stone. When do I become a member of the body of the Son? This is the moment that I become that member of that body. How? Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's the acting of God that's the amazing thing. We enter the water in obedience, and the body of sin dies. It's buried. And the resurrection out of the water is likened by Paul to the resurrection of Jesus in the tomb. The same power that raised Jesus in the tomb completes something spiritual in us so that we can actually walk in a new life. That's mind-boggling. That the power that worked on Jesus in his resurrection works on me when I'm resurrected from the water. I mean, and I, I don't say that to be like hyperbolic or whatever. Like to me, it's mind-boggling. That's amazing. And that's the lesson. As I said earlier, this is more of a lesson for me than really for you because I haven't talked to you guys about your concepts of the temple and the church and God's place of worship. It was for me because this is something that I've struggled with in my mind for years. And it's very helpful for me to see the simplicity that God had a tabernacle, God had a temple, and God has a temple. And all of them are subject to Him. And just like the tabernacle worship or the temple worship, we choose to participate. The difference being that now we are choosing to be part of the temple or not. Right? So my encouragement to you is that this isn't just a lifestyle to say, yeah, I'm in the temple or no, I'm not in the temple and they're of equal value. I think the reason you're here is that you know that's not true. Right? My encouragement to you is if you've been made one of those stones, you've been put in the temple, right? rejoice in that, but also meditate upon it and say, what does that, what does that mean for how I live tomorrow morning? I'm part of the body that's directed by the head. What does that mean for what I'm going to do at work this week? How I'm going to talk to my coworkers, right? 
And if the life of being part of the temple is something that attracts you, and you're like, I want to be in that temple. I want to be in that body. And I have not done what Paul mentions in Romans chapter 6. I have not done what James brought up in class this morning in Acts 2.38. When Peter's response to them was, repent and be baptized. Right? Then my encouragement is do that. If you have things you need to repent of, well, it doesn't help you to be baptized. I mean, all you do is get wet. And if you've repented, well, why did you repent if you're not going to be baptized? Now you're just living this kind of ascetic lifestyle, trying to right, keep your body from doing all these things that it wants to do, but you're really just carrying the burden of your sin anyway. right? I mean, the argument would be just go out and sin. Because if you're not going to be forgiven of your sins, why keep yourself back from the world? Right? Doing one without the other doesn't, doesn't make a hill of beans of sense. Right? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to sing a song that Robin selected, number 660. The purpose of that song is specifically to encourage you to think about these eternal things and to say, hey, you know what? I either need to study this more, I have questions about it, or I don't need to study it anymore. I need to act on it. So please talk to someone about that today if, if you're in, in that state where you need to talk or you need to act. We encourage you to do either one as we stand and sing. <laughs>